Welcome to Protect and Grow. I am Tracy Cotton. And I'm Vicki Gibson. Together we host Protect and Grow the podcast. If you're interested in agriculture and curious about insurance, you're in the right place. We can't wait to share our knowledge, experience, and stories with you. So y'all, this week, I'm going to have Vicki interview me on best practices of agritourism in the COVID age. But I'm certain, I know y'all are certain too, she might want to, I don't know, play a game first because, you know, that's part of the fun. What's <laughs> me? the <nice> question, Vicki? <laughs> Not me. I, you know, I'm always serious. Come on, Tracy. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, I thought about it. And this week's kind of one of those get to know a person question type thing is going to be this one. Da, 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 da. If I walk through your front door, what are three things I would see? Okay, let me think. Um, okay, and <laughs> I was trying to think of three things. Okay. Okay. So when you first walk in my door, uh, because I don't keep it on the door year round, but I have it on a door. I have a wreath that my mother purchased for me several years ago that she had an artist create for me. That is, it is a nightmare before Christmas wreath. It's got Jack Skellington and Sally and Oogie Boogie and all of the ornaments on this black <laughs> wreath. And I put it out on the front door during Christmas and Halloween, like pretty much from Halloween to Christmas, it just stays on the front door. But the rest of the time it stays on another door, like right as, as soon as you walk in, because it's just convenient. And it, you know, that door just needed a little something, something. And then I have an amazing grace cross that is really near the door. But if you look over to the right, I have this little desk area, this in an alcove. And at any given time, it, it is usually covered like so you can't see the pretty little desk that it is with paper. And here I am an insurance agent who at this very moment is still determined to become paperless in my business. And yet at my own house, I can't seem to let go of it. I, I, I just want to keep file folders and I want to keep everything in you know, some sort of organization. But meanwhile, it's all stacked up on a desk. And that's me. And three things. What about you, Vicki? Well, if you come in my front door, one of the first things you'll see is a sign that says, think deeply, speak gently, love much, work hard, give freely, and be kind. And I have it there because for me, it's a great reminder when I walk out the door and a good reminder when I walk back in the door. You know, it just kind of sets me for who I want to be when I leave. Um, so hopefully anybody who visits, you know, they get the same kind of thing. Uh, if you look up on the wall, I have a black and white picture of the most adorable Highland cow, you know, in a frame. And then I have an entry table that has uh, an elephant that a friend of mine gave me because I do collect elephants. But that elephant sits on two Bibles. The one Bible was my mama's when she was a little girl. 
And my other Bible was my grandpa Fuzzy's Bible. And it's full of, as you turn pages, you'll find old pictures of family members and obituaries and um, different things like that. And it's funny because when I thought about asking you these questions, I actually picked it up today and kind of flipped through it. And I actually found a spot I'd never noticed in it before where he wrote notes in it. But it wasn't about maybe the Bible verse he was reading, but just more about things that were happening in life and what was happening to him that day. And the one day that I came across was the one-year anniversary of my Uncle Woody passing away. And my Grandpa Fuzzy had just written there that it was the one-year anniversary of the saddest day of his life. And his name was Fuzzy. That was his nickname. That was his nickname because he didn't have much hair on the top of his head. So his mm. head was always kind of fuzzy. <laughs> so he just called him Grandpa oh. Fuzzy. So anyways, I was looking through Fuzzy's, you know, his Bible and came across that today. So kind of, it was just kind of touching to me. So kind of, you know, glad that we played the game and I found something new today. Well, that's special and that's and 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 your son it just reminds me of well I mean it reminds me of who you and I both are it reminds me of you know like our our last podcast guest Terry Moore I mean the work hard and live much and think deeply I what a very inspiring thing to have by your door much less to be able to see those two Bibles in every time you go past underneath that little elephant it's a reminder elephant because (laughs) they never forget (laughs) They never forget. (laughs) All right. Well, let's get kind of back down to our topic um, for tonight. You know, Tracy, when I think of you and before we really, I should go back, before we really started talking about even doing a podcast, um, you know, if somebody said, what do you know about Tracy Cotton? I would be like, oh, that's the farm to fork insurance lady, right? She, you know, promotes that. (laughs) And so, you know, here we are. And um, you're so passionate about what you do, the insurance side, but also promoting agritourism. Um, So, you know, I am curious because we've just never really talked about it. You know, what's your background in it? Um, You know, what's made that passion burn so? And, uh, you know, give us a little talk about it now. Sure thing, Vicki. You know, I am passionate about agritourism specifically within the niche of agriculture, because I know it serves a lot of awesome roles to farms and the future of farms. It's a supplemental source of income for more and more farms. That is a reality we're seeing everywhere. It's, you know, it's, it's everywhere. It's literally throughout the whole entire world. There's, there's more and more agritourism farms, but especially in the United States. And I know that in North Carolina, I've seen where, that is a supplemental source of income that makes sure that things get planted in the spring. It makes sure that animals get fed because there's another source of income, no matter what else is going on in the world, if they can get people out there. But to me, it goes beyond that because I see the importance of having the public come out and spend time on farms. That experience of being on a farm is something that everyone should have a personal experience with. I mean, I grew up with relatives that farmed, 
So as a child, I got to hang out and I called it the country. It was Shelbyville, Tennessee, Bedford County, and, and the, the cattle farming industry within that, you know, although there's a lot of horses, that was what we did. And I got to spend time out there, but not everybody has that kind of background. And the farther we get away from the agrarian background that we have, I think people really want to spend time escaping the city. And, and I know that for myself, I've gotten to volunteer on some farm tours where people were coming in from, you know, being in town to get out to come out for the farm tours. And there's enthusiasm, there's enlightenment, and there's just that plain enjoyment that the people get when they come out and time on farms. And with that, you know, I know that, you know, that was something that I just felt was a specific part of farms that I wanted to try to address. I knew from an insurance perspective, it was a unique aspect. So I, I joined the North Carolina Agritourism Networking Association back in 2016. And, you know, within these last four years, I've spent a lot of time really delving into risk management and liability and what to do to, to help those farms. It's allowed me to have the opportunity to present. Um, I've been able to have presentations and pick the brains of local attorneys that specialize in working with farms. And I've gotten to do two different presentations with the North Carolina Extension Office, their agriculture and environmental law professor. And he's fantastic. And it's been, you know, it's been a great experience for me because I got to hear more of the legal aspect of it as well. Now, Agritourism laws differ from state to state, but I feel like one of the things that I wanted to bring out in this episode was just some really kind of generic and common concerns that I think that we should be addressing, you know, as to the risk of people coming out to the farm, because I think that it's definitely a time period where we're going to see people want to escape to the farm. Hmm. I dream about escaping to the farm probably daily. <laughs> um, you know, coming from being on the family farm to uh, not being on one and living in the city, uh, I cannot express how many times, you know, I really have just closed my eyes and just longed to hear the cows in the background and the smell of corn drying in the dryer. It smells like popcorn going and um, hearing a combine cutting off in the distance and all those things that happen in springtime. I mean, I'm sorry, in the fall time, where's my head? In the fall, and that's also the time when I think of most farm visits. I don't know why um, I don't associate them as much with the springtime as I do in the fall, but I think about pumpkin patches and, um, you know, picking apples and peaches in the late summer and, and those types of things. I mean, do you think with everything that's going on out there right now that, you know, the public's really going to be headed to the farms this year? You know, I was a little bit skeptical about it myself, but I regularly volunteer with a very strong regional organization. It's a nonprofit called the Appalachian Sustainable Agriculture Program, <laughs> and they work with 64 counties between Tennessee, North Carolina, Virginia, Georgia, South Carolina. I think that I've named all of them. They're along the Appalachian Mountains, and that's, their, that's actually what they do. And they're getting calls on a regular basis from people wanting to know 
who's open, what's open, what can we get out and do? And they normally put out what they call the local food guide. It normally comes out in March. Well, they were getting ready to publish and then COVID hit and they were afraid to publish it because they were afraid every bit of information they had would be wrong. That anything that they said that was going to happen, whether it be farmers markets, et cetera, would possibly not even be correct. And they didn't want to put the money in publishing it and nothing happened. So they waited. And now that it's, you know, it's getting to be like really kind of high season, they want to go ahead and publish, but they decided we're going to add a whole section on nothing but welcoming the public to farms and which farms are available for some of the things that they normally do. Like they might, in, you know, might actually have people come out for tours. They might have people who come out for a UPIC. They might have people come out for farm stands. But specifically, one of the things I was doing as a volunteer this last two weeks is calling a number of farms and asking, are you still going to be open? What are you doing in order to address the needs of the public? How can they make sure that they, you know, you know, how can they enjoy their experience the best? So I think that it's going to be record numbers. And I think that in some ways it's, it's a little, it's disconcerting maybe because I know that they're probably is, you know, people probably just think that they're going to be safer out there, but they also want something that's close by. And if they can drive out, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes, an hour outside of whatever city they're normally living in and get to something fun, that's a whole lot more feasible at this point than it is necessarily to fly for a vacation. And they still are wanting to do things that appeal to their family and get them out of the house. Oh, I agree. I think, you know, the, the whole concept of going out to the farm and doing corn mazes and hitting the pumpkin patch, all the things that families look forward to, um, and we're headed into that time. But I think, you know, for me, I'm still wondering how many people are going to be concerned about the crowds and what's going to happen. And are they going to stay away if they think that there's going to be areas that it's crowded because you think a farm, but I've been out to pumpkin patches where, you know, it's crowded. You're going through yeah. the maze, you're passing people, Absolutely. you know, so I, I hope that it's not going to have that type of effect on these farmers. But, um, you know, I, I just still think that we're going to have people that are going to want to avoid crowds. What do you think? Well, I, I, I definitely agree because I know from what I've seen, you know, it's, it's really hurt the businesses that were literally farms that were in the wedding business, because that's something that is like just happening on a much smaller scale. And the people are still wanting to, and in some cases, maybe a bride that was planning on having a really large venue experience may still want that quaint barnyard experience, if you will. And, and I think there's still going to be some opportunity for that, but it's going to be on a much smaller scale. There there's going to be less festivals and in some states, no festivals. I mean, it really, there's been some, you know, definitely between jurisdictions that is definitely affected how many people can come out. In general, I just hope that there's going to be less big group events because I, I think the public could be a little bit fooled by thinking that they are safer coming out. And it puts a lot of pressure on a farm to be able to pr provide such a safe experience if too many people show up at the same time you know, it's outdoors. So they're thinking it must be safer, but I don't know that that's actually necessarily the case. And I just hope 
that the farms that have been doing these kind of activities are going to be able to just adjust their normal activities to be safer, not only for the visitors, but also for their staff. Well, that's a good point. You know, um, I, I personally feel, you know, as an employer that you, you owe it to your staff to keep them safe. They're your people. They take care of you. They are the reason um, for the majority of your success. And if you don't look out for them, you know, you, you're going to create a bigger problem. And so, you know, with that said, you said also mentioned you were calling some different farms, seeing who's going to be open, how they're handling things. I mean, what adjustments are you hearing about people doing in order to make the environment safer? I mean, is it just social distancing? Are people talking about having to put up more signage? Are they talking about signing waivers? You know, what, what, what's the norm right now, if there is one? Well, different locations are definitely going to be doing different things, but I know that from who I've talked to and then also the guidelines that are put out in North Carolina through the extension service, you know, they're following very closely and tracking very closely with CDC guidelines. You know, if there's going to be a place within the farm where there would be a line or there would be a crowd around, you know, and it could be that, you know, like normally there wouldn't be, you know, it would be no problem, but you know, if there's a line to the restroom, there's a line to check out, just like you're seeing in lots of other places, go ahead and put little flags up of this is how far six feet is so that they can picture how far they need to stand apart from the next group of visitors and making sure that when they go to pay for their purchases, that, that they also, you know, that there's also going to be some, some priority given to protecting the workers that they're not going to be handling cash barehanded, that they're actually going to be actually using gloves for it. And we'll get into that for a, in a minute, but I just, I know that, you know, I know that when it comes to the waivers, and I've spent some time talking to attorneys about this particular subject, it is literally just another level of defense. Like if you're actually capturing waivers from, from somebody, every time they come on to a, onto your farm for a certain kind of activity, it can make sense because it shows that you have done your due diligence to make sure they're aware of what additional dangers are there. However, they're saying now that, I mean, if you just got a UPIC, you've got a regular, just a retail type of operation where there's not really a lot of paid activities going on, let the people just come on out, let them be spaced, make sure your employees are wearing their masks. You know, that's, that's, if nothing else, you know, the mask thing is really more of a customer service thing at this point. But if you are looking at the, at the possibility of having a group of, maybe it's just a, a homeschool group of six, or, or maybe it's a church group that wants to come out and there's 10 of them having those people sign waivers and you've got a really good way of keeping up and keeping records of that and holding on to it, that could add a layer of defense for you from a, from a legal standpoint. But, you know, are they paying extra to get to do that activity? Are they going to be doing something high risk? I do know that some of the farms out there that have had some of those kind of fun activities, um, they are still planning on 
letting a limited number of people on a jumping pillow or a limited number of people go through a corn maze at a time. Those are those kind of activities where you could possibly get somebody to sign a waiver and it, at least you would have a good control on that. But in general, those are usually not necessary because it's just not, it's not going to do a whole lot in court, especially if there really was some sort of negligence. Yeah. Uh, you know, are there ways, you know, to help manage that risk? You, you've talked about numerous things, but is there pretty much a standard that's out there? Well, and, and you mentioned signage earlier and, and we also, you know, we're, we're talking about the masks and the gloves and really, I, I don't want, I mean, I want there to be signs actually actual locations so that people are reminded just like they are when they go into any establishment that's actually encouraging or requiring there to be masks worn. And it can be based on your jurisdiction as to whether or not that's going to be, you know, a thing, but signs are great. But why not go ahead and let people know before they even get out there? If you've got a social media presence, if you've got a website, if you've got a newsletter that you're sending out, these are really the bread and butter of your organization anyway. Most agritourism venues of some sort on a farm have started developing an audience, people who want to come out from year to year because they're looking forward to opening day when they can finally come out and actually pick some apples. Or they're looking forward to that day when they can actually come out and make that first visit those that you've captured as an audience, make sure that they already know what their experience is going to be like, because it could be different. And you don't want to, you know, you don't want to lose a customer who's been coming for years if you can let them know at least in advance what they might be up against. But making sure that you've got your workers properly with the PPE, which is your, you know, your gloves, if they're handling money or handling food, because that's always something you always do, or everybody wearing masks that is an employee, staff member, volunteers, et cetera, because I know some farms just utilize family, friends, et cetera, as volunteers. They don't necessarily pay anybody. So don't think when I say employee, that means you're really paying somebody because I get that. But you're already used to it when, you know, if they're going to be serving off, you know, somebody's going to be serving apple donuts and bakery items. There's usually already a supply of, of gloves. This is just adding a little bit more by putting that mask on. But the other thing that is a recommendation that I'm seeing all across the board, Vicki, is the hand washing stations and hand sanitizer. They've always recommended it on farms, especially UPICs, because literally speaking, before somebody goes out into the field or comes back in from the orchard, they should be making sure that they are keeping everything as clean as possible because it's just not even good for the crop itself. I mean, let's face it, who wants to have somebody go tromp through a strawberry field touching everything? That's just bad, bad. But with this particular atmosphere, even though we know it's not foodborne, that added level of hygiene that is available to them, you know, not everybody's going to bring their own hand sanitizer. So making sure that's available so that they can, they can utilize that especially if there's high touch areas, you know, countertops and places where they might be sitting at a table. One of the things that I read was that a lot of people obviously have those wonderful, lovely, you know, wood picnic tables, but they're actually encouraging in some cases to put out folding chairs and plastic tables so that you can wipe them down easier and you can really make sure that they're getting really clean and not just looking cleaner. But at the very least, I think that when it comes down to it, especially for your more popular venues, 
some folks have always been very popular. I mean, there's places that I know they regularly get visitors from all over a region. It's going to be limiting the number of people who come and it's outdoors, but that limiting the number through either an online reservation or an advanced ticket, they go ahead and they've gone ahead and reserved a time to come I think that that's going to be about the only way that some of our farms are really going to be able to manage the number of people at any given time. And people understand it a little bit more, at least right now, than they would like maybe if it was a, you know, a different type of activity or a different time period. But I think that it's going to be, I mean, if you're, do you really want, I mean, none of our farms really want to end up in trouble with their local authorities Mm -hmm. because they are exceeding the guidelines for capacity. Absolutely. You know, everything you're talking about, that's all great tips. And, you know, COVID or even no COVID, a strong uh, risk management plan should be in place at all agritourism sites and farms and businesses. Yet with that said, the best plan isn't the same as having good insurance. What does an agritourism farm need to protect their assets? Well, you're absolutely right, Vicki. Keeping everyone safe doesn't mean there's not going to be something that happens. There's going to be accidents. There's going to be incidents. Things happen at the farm. And that's what liability insurance is for. Literally speaking, you know, you could have your LLC and you can put up your signs and you can make sure that everybody's got proper protection. But liability insurance is what takes care of addressing when somebody says, I was injured I was hurt. And let's face it, agritourism can be challenging from an insurance perspective. You know, it's not normally covered underneath a regular farm insurance policy because, well, let's face it, a regular farm insurance policy is usually anticipating that there is a residence, that there's outbuildings, that people are farming. And so there's business exposure of sorts, but it's not taking into consideration crowds of people coming out to the location and farming in general is a dangerous thing. I mean, there's big implements, there's people walking along and falling into a gopher hole. There's, there's bees and snakes and all the things that people can encounter when they come out to a farm setting. But we're really at a point in time where it's also just a matter of you've got to be making sure that you're protected because they could say anything They could say that, you know, that they, you know, hadn't been sick before until they came out and they were amongst a lot of other people and and there they go. So with that, you know, the farm policy is not designed for agritourism, but there are either one of the aspects, obviously, is that there's a lot of farms that get a separate liability policy just for the time period. Like you were saying before, a lot of people think of agritourism or they think of a certain time of year when they're going to go out and they're going to do the corn maze or the pumpkin patch or the farm festival as used to be the, the case. And it was typically August, September, October, November. And with that, most farms have an idea as to when they're actual, they're going to have their activities when they're planning on having people out because they don't do it necessarily around. Like you said, spring is not the thing for most Uh, for most farms. That's when they're busy planting things or pruning things back. They're getting everything in motion. It's not the best time. Besides, they want to be able to maximize on the product they can sell at the same time. 
So if you know what your time period is, the possibility is you could get a separate liability policy just for, and they call it a special event policy. Uh, I've seen it. I mean, I, I literally have seen where, you know, they, they tied into a specific type of event. Like it's, you know, people would say, oh, well, this must be my pumpkin patch policy. Well, it's not really, but that's not really what it is. It's liability, but for a specific time period and specifically for those activities that are going on during that time period. It could be a month. It could be four weekends. It could be three months, but it's not a year policy. It's really very specific to certain amount of days. Now, that's available to just about anybody. But what I'm starting to see some other carriers be more open-minded to is adding some sort of agritourism risk onto a farm owner's policy with a charge. They charge based on revenue. They, they charge based on the risk. You know, if, if a venue is like primarily weddings, you know, they probably know how that looks from a standpoint of attendance. This is a little bit more unique time period, and I'm hoping that there's not going to be any issue with carriers being open-minded for, for these type of events as they come up. But a lot of folks, I mean, are just looking at it from a premium standpoint and worrying, is it a lot of money? And if it's only based on the revenue that you're actually seeing during that time period, and they know that the rest of the year you're really just legitimately getting out there, doing the farm, it's not going to be a huge amount of premium and may actually be a better way to go about it than it would be to get a special event policy just for a certain amount of weeks. If you could actually include it underneath an actual whole package policy, that would mean that there was no, he said, she said, like, did it happen at the pumpkin patch or did it happen over, you know, closer to the house? Was it, on the weekend that there was an actual event or did it happen like the day after your special event policy canceled and somebody just happened to be coming by to pick up some more pumpkins or something because they were going to take it to, you know, to a, a school event. And you'd said you were going to donate the last of your pumpkins. Well, if that was an issue, you know, if there was a specific issue with that, that could still be affected depending on, you know, what's, what's actually covered on the policy. So I just, I think that, People should really like get out there and think about what it is that they've got, but at the very least investigate what their options are available. Yeah. I mean, you and I have spoken before about how every insurance policy needs to be tailored to the person or the business or the farm that it's covering, you know, and with that said, you know, I personal example uh, coming from my own daughter who lives in South Carolina, has a little bit of acreage, um, and started raising some goats. <laughs> and hang <laughs> on if those things aren't cute. But anyways, um, so she got into raising these goats. Next thing she knew, uh, the idea of hosting goat yoga came up. Goat and yoga. Who knew? Goat, yeah, goat yoga. Um, and so basically it's a time when people come out, the goats wander around while people are doing yoga. They, you know, climb on people. They visit them. They lay down <laughs> on the mat. Um, you know, they do what goats do best, and that's whatever they want to. And so <laughs> she had, a, you know, a wonderful yoga instructor, thought it was a great idea. They took it on, um, have had great success. 
Next thing she knew, she had businesses calling her, asking if she could come to their site and put up a fence and bring the goats and host a yoga event at, uh, for example, it was a apartment complex. Uh, new, students, cool. new students had just moved in to go to school at Clemson University. And, um, you know, they wanted an event for him. So my daughter was able to load up the goats, go out there, set up the fence and, uh, you know, have some yoga for the people. They loved it. The thing was, at that point, she was operating on a waiver only because she was been <laughs> struggling to find somebody who would write a policy for it. Um, everybody she kept reaching out to said, oh, we won't do it. We don't do that. Uh, the people who handled her farm policy said, we can handle the farm policy, but you need to go talk to these people about goat yoga policy. So she did that, visited, sat down in an office. Unfortunately, the company said, oh, yeah, we'll look into it. She never heard back from it. Mm. Became very frustrated and started doing some investigating into agritourism and what's there. And so, you know, the thought being that there's bound to be other people doing this on their farm and how are they getting coverage for it? And by doing so, long way around, all of a sudden, she finds herself talking with her local Farm Bureau agent who came out to the farm, who, uh, you know, discussed their farm insurance and also said they had a division that she wanted to contact and see if they would be willing to write the goat yoga policy. It would be the first one that they have done in the state of South Carolina, from what I understand. Um, <laughs> So it took some doing, but just recently she called me and said, this is what was offered to me. And we kind of went through it all. The big dilemma as of now is that because of COVID, they're not hosting any yoga events. And so, you know, it's, what do you do? Do you go ahead and get the policy, you know, the back and forth and um, the bottom line here, I told her was just making sure that she had the coverage. So when she does decide to invite people back or she decides to load those goats up and they had some place to do yoga, that she has the proper coverage because, you know, there's that, like you were talking about with waivers. I think they keep honest people honest. Yeah. But people that really want to sue you are going to sue you. And yep. so, um, you know, that's important. But that's just one aspect of making sure that you find a policy that covers the needs that you have on your personal business farm, you know, agritourism business, whatever it is, and how important it is to just continue looking, asking the right questions, uh, but also understanding what your needs are is the most important thing, in my personal opinion, when you get to, you know, looking for insurance. Well, and I think that you've touched on a really good point. And it is that, unfortunately, you know, it sometimes whoever you've been going through for your insurance may not be the end all specializing in whatever you're trying to do. Agritourism in general is sometimes very tough. You have to find an insurance agent that really understands it. Making sure that you are upfront with them about what it is you plan on doing, because it's, 
it's not a good idea to say it's, it's really <laughs> when it comes to agritourism and, and for that matter, probably anything insurance related, it's not one of those things that you want to ask for forgiveness for. You want to ask for permission. You, you want to know ahead of time what you're looking at, because otherwise, you know, I know that for myself, I've always been one that I want to make sure that whatever that farm wants to do, that they are at least equipped to make sure that they are making the right decision. If they want to have zombie paintball corn mazes with a zip line in their farm, because it just makes them so happy. They think it's going to make everybody's life better. It's going to make their life better. They're going to make a ton of money at it. They need to really understand what that looks like from a premium standpoint. And are they going to be able to make enough money to actually offset what their dream is? If not, maybe they could just get by with just the corn maze instead of all the rest of it. Maybe they could get by with just having people out for tour, for some sort of specific activity, and it not be the highest risk thing known to man because they can get the insurance perhaps, and it may take a little digging, but then how much are they going to pay? You know, if they're paying more than they could possibly make because it is considered to be such a high risk activity because it involves water or, or paintball or, you know what I'm saying? I mean, the ideas that, that they'll have sometimes of what they want to do out there are wonderful, but fitting your dream into the box of what actually makes the most sense. Now, what I would suggest because of knowing, you know, from my background and being around the North Carolina Agritourism Network Association, they provide anybody that is a member, for that matter, anybody who just wants to look on their website, they provide links to agents that regularly work with them and know what agritourism is. In different states, that should also be the case. Most states now have some sort of either a private association or association that is linked through the Department of Ag that can get them to agents who understand what it is that they're looking for. Maybe they need to go through a specialty organization. Maybe it needs to be someone out of state, but they'll know more about it once they do the research. And then they also need to know, really, from being part of that kind of association, they'll learn more about what the laws are that may actually serve to protect them. There is within a lot more states, it is a growing number of states that have taken on an agritourism statute of some sort, the wording is different, the specifics are different, but like just say for instance in North Carolina, that agritourism statute, if you post that sign where people see it as soon as they come in, it can be used as another line of defense to say, hey, you knew before you came out here that the coffee was hot. And, I know, know that... <laughs> <laughs> I'll just, just say that I know that um, that's the case in South Carolina too. They have yep. the same, the same yep. statue. South Carolina. I just heard from somebody who just recently contacted me in Florida and they have an agritourism statute, but she literally was contacting me in North Carolina because she had not been able to find anybody local for in, in, in Florida. And, and so that's where, you know, I think it gets a little bit more challenging, but one way or the other, you, you know, that there's resources out there, you know, that if you're going to have the public out there, that you're bound to have something happen sooner or later, the odds are, it may not happen right now, just because maybe the, you know, maybe people will be more cautious. Maybe you will be able to keep people from wandering off to the part of the farm that they don't need to be wandering off to, but the very least having that level of insurance protection in case anything happens that is it's doable 
Um, it's really normally very affordable depending on the kind of activities that you want to have there and how much revenue you're making off of it. And there's so many wonderful creative things that you can do on the farm and people are going to really enjoy it. I, I just think that there's no reason not to ask the right questions and find the right answers. Yeah. I mean, as you were sitting there saying all these things, I, in my head, I'm thinking, you know, the last thing I'd ever want to do as an insurance agent would be to have somebody question a thought or an idea that they have that could be an agritourism uh, activity on their farm. So there's, like you said, there's so many things out there. And if somebody has an idea, even if they think it's a crazy idea, people have ideas and they're fun and call your insurance agent, tell them what you're thinking, ask them their thoughts. You know, as an agent, we also have the ability of saying, Ooh, that's great, but let's think about this. Let's think about that. Let's figure out how we can make sure that this is covered too. So in other words, we can help with the idea process. We can help with the plan process. We can help make sure that the hurdles are going to be where you're aware of them to be so that as you're going along and you're planning things, you know what's going to be asked of you and you're going to be able to come up with a plan of, how you're going to make that safe or how you're going to make sure that people don't go near the pond or how you're going to do these things. And so uh, by all means, don't think that I don't want people to think that they shouldn't have people out on the farm because it's wonderful. And what an opportunity people in ag have to open up the farms and educate people uh, about what farmers do. And so if you come up with an idea, don't run from it. Grasp it. Ask questions. If your agent can't give you coverage, I guarantee you they will help you find it. Exactly. I mean, that is, that's it in a nutshell. I, I think that if, if nothing else, that people should be, you know, I think that our, our farm listeners should be encouraged that at any time, much less COVID, that there's, there's definitely a need for them to find ways to be able to invite people out and experience a workshop, a class, a, a tour, get the product, no, actually like get to experience what it's like to taste, you know, what they're making out there, what they're, what they're growing. And, you know, those are the things that just carry over and, you know, with customers for life. I mean, really, I know for a fact that that memory I know that there's definitely, especially like around here in Hendersonville, because we're known for our apples, there are orchards that have been in existence for over 50 years now that whole families keep coming back to year after year because it's part of their family's tradition to get to spend time during harvest to come out and spend time picking an apple, eating some donuts, or, or just having some fun. Yeah, awesome stuff we've talked about tonight. Lots of things. And in my head, I'm thinking, here it is, hot July summer. And i kind of looking forward to the fall coming. Uh, It'd be nice to be able to get out, maybe pick some fresh apples this season. Uh, Really enjoy that. You know, Honeycrisp is like my favorite apple. 
especially to do like caramel apples with them, dip them in that caramel and roll them in some pecans. And I just think they're wonderful. What about you? Do you have a favorite apple or? You know, Honeycrisp is actually my favorite as well. It's uh, most of the orchards in the area have at least a certain number of apples that may, of the orchard that they have assigned to Honeycrisp because it's been so popular. Mm-hmm. And I would love to tell you that I'm one of those bakers that, you know, that makes apple uglies and, and cobblers and, and, and all these awesome things, but I'm bad. I, you know, I go out and I get the big bag thinking, oh, I'm going to do this with it. And by the time I get home, all I want to do is just cut them up and eat them. I just want, and I want to just, you know, eat them and, and li- literally, you know, putting some in the fridge, they'll last so long. That's one of the things I love about apples is that, you know, I can really kind of extend the season on an apple a lot you know, better than I can even berries or other fruits like peaches. Uh, I, I love all of those things, but apples last a long time. And I, that's what I think I love about them is because, you know, they'll still be fresh sometimes even, you know, until later in the season. Oh, and to me, it seems like when you put them in the fridge and they've been there for a while, you pull them out, they're crispier. It could be all in my head, but I think they're crispier <laughs> and I like to bite into a crunchy apple. If yeah, it's you know, crunchy, I, I don't want it, but I want know, it. There's, there is, you know, and that's really one of those kind of camps where people either really like, and there's certain types like maybe they've always grown up with Yellow Delicious, which are softer, you know, but they're also really good for applesauce, you know, or, you know, there's other types of varieties that are more heirloom almost, if you will, where those, you know, maybe traditionally they, you know, the family had always you know, liked wine sap or Rome or, or perhaps Gala, um, Granny Smith's. I mean, let's yeah, face I was it. say I'm traditional Granny Smith when it comes yep. to apple cobblers or I make apple bread and I make, you know, uh, apple pies and you know, Granny Smith's are usually my go-to. And I also, I love them. I, when I do pork, I do um, oh, these scalloped God. apples in a skillet. Mm, yeah, girl, I am totally ready for some fresh apples well you know the funny thing is neither one of us have mentioned anything about pumpkin spice so hopefully we haven't annoyed anybody with this podcast we are strictly sticking to the things that we think that you know that we know we're looking forward to come fall and that's number one is for me is is apples well pumpkins have their place too (laughs) and that's decorated on the front porch for halloween exactly Not not in my coffee I will Mm-mm. say that I'm probably going to get lots of hate, lots of hate, hate me all you want to, but I don't want anything pumpkin when it comes to my coffee. Um, no. with, but I do like pumpkin bar. Yeah, we could keep going about food. Let's just stop right there because anybody who knows me knows I love to bake. And so we better just stop because now I'm hungry and I just had supper not what an hour ago but um yeah (laughs) I think it's time to close this episode well I think we picked the perfect way to end the episode we can definitely just leave everybody hungry for more so here we go thanks for joining us for protect and grow the podcast as always we appreciate you sharing your time with us before you go we want to ask y'all to show us some love follow us on twitter Tell your friends and colleagues about us. Most importantly, subscribe to Protect and Grow and don't miss the next episode.
legal stuff. It's time for legal stuff. Uh, this is a personal podcast. Any views or opinions in the podcast are personal and belong slowly, solely to the host and do not represent those people, institutions, organizations, or businesses that the host may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated. Bye, y'all. <laughs>